Hey, we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries. Now, if you're like me, enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries. I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana, they're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today. This is the Meat Eater Podcast coming at you shirtless, severely bug-bitten, and in my case, underwearless. We hunt the Meat Eater Podcast. You can't predict anything. Okay, I'll tell these guys about our little meat shop, our meat shop we had going last night. I'm pretty excited about this. is um, actually... Are you journaling right now? Yes, I am. Mm. Tell them about our meat shop. It's New Year, Steve. I've got some <laughs> new uh, resolutions I'm tackling. Um, so uh, very fortuitous that John Edwards is here because we went down and shot a pile of uh, honkers and some ducks. And uh, Steve and I were cleaning our uh, pile of birds and uh, decided to do some batch cooking. Or some putting up of wild game. We should, if we were nice, uh, we would have invited John, since he took us hunting. I was, I was waiting for the invite. We, <laughs> and it, oh, last night, we would have invited him over for our meat project. Yeah, but the, we were, didn't do that. Now here he is, and it's embarrassing. <laughs> <laughs> you guys suck. <laughs> yeah, you know what I almost did too. What makes a good hunting partner? I made we made duck stock last, or I finally canned my duck stock last night, and I almost brought you a jar. <laughs> almost. <laughs> I thought about doing it, and I haven't written it off yet. I just thought you know I should bring one of those to John. I was sitting there by myself by the fire plucking birds. It would have been nice to see you. Mm-hmm. Just, just, just kind of lonely, tear, 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 tear in my eye, man. <laughs> the, the reality, we didn't come to the conclusion until well into the cleaning process. It was still like, I'm going to clean my birds, you clean your birds. And at one point, we had three kids crawling on the counter, plucking individual feathers out of birds, wanting, helping. Wanting to be the one that gets to cut something. <laughs> yes. Uh, give me the knife. And uh, But yeah, so uh, we decided that we're going to do a group kind of pickling of giblets, a uh, confit uh, of the thighs and legs, which I'm super excited about because I've never it's actually the, it's done the that. the best thing on the planet. Go on and I'll talk about that for a minute. Um, yeah, we need to define that one because I was still, I, 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 the definition for me still wasn't 100% until we you walked me through it. And then um, we are uh, uh, making pastrami out of the breast curing the breasts so it is a um, uh, charcuterie it was a little it, was, it wasn't a meat shop it was a charcuterie shop because confit falls under charcuterie charcuterie it does it yeah. has to because it, it's a preservation preservation, preservation yeah. Yeah. Let, me, let me walk you which this i wasn't aware quick. of i don't know if this is true but i've heard this as being true that are you familiar with foie gras it's a food that i'm kind of uncomfortable with because not because of the end product, 
but because of the how process. you, the process of. Foie yeah. gras is produced, <laughs> foie gras is basically a really tasty, diseased liver out of a duck. And what they do is they, to produce it, um, they will put a funnel into a duck's mouth and force feed it. Well, here's where it gets tricky. One might look and say um, that they force feed the duck all this grain, way more than it would ever eat naturally. And upon force feeding, it causes it to develop to develop a very large fatty liver. And that is foie gras. This practice is, is illegal in some places. Pro, pro foie gras people will say, you know what, bro? Those ducks line up for it. <laughs> like when you pull that funnel out, it's like getting <laughs> a dog. It's like filling a dog's bowl. They come a running or so I've heard. Like I'm not a subject matter expert on foie gras production, but that's what it is. Someone like, so if you get a wild duck, someone told me once, and again, I don't know that this is true, but I like, I like this because there's a tidiness to this, that if you, when you butcher a foie gras duck, that duck has so much body fat that you can harvest the liver and that one particular duck would have produced enough fat to confit its own thighs and legs. I can oh. attest to that. You've done foie, you've tortured. No. Oh, okay. But <laughs> you fun, we, I didn't, you I didn't, funnel even, I didn't even force feed them. We fed them a lot of shit because I know because they were they, they, they were eating all the chicken food and so eventually oh, these are the ducks that tried to also molest the chickens right yeah 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 oh, big, isn't there that's a why poor I, man's foie gras where you don't force feed them but you just feed them a lot right I, I you know what I didn't even think to look at the livers but I can really? tell you that when I cooked them why not just you're a thrifty dude I don't know but I might even not have been the one that gutted them my wife might have gutted them and I thought about it anyways. My point is, is that when I cooked them, we try to roast them. And I even read about this when I was going to roast these ducks. A lot of people said farm-raised ducks, man, you got to be careful because there's so much fat. You'll literally end up like, you won't be able to roast it because it'll just kind of baste itself and boil itself in its own fat. There's so much. <laughs> I like that. Yeah, mm -hmm. it sounds good. It's kind of what happened. But after we ate the duck, I realized that between what I had in the pan and that was still like attached to the skin, there was so much fat. I was like, I got to do something with this. So then I took all that and rendered it. And I think out of two ducks, I ended up with three pints. No. Yes. Really? Whoa. Wow. And it's some good shit, let me tell you. That's very, enough for confit, very, right? I got, oh, yeah. I got a little yeah. Plenty, plenty. I mean, a pint, that would be three, for, for three, three cups thigh. of fat, I think would be and enough. And this involved no funneling at all. No funneling. I'm against the funnel. I feel like this. It, listen, man, the funnel is. The minute they start feeding something and it involves a funnel. It's wrong. It's I've good, found that anytime I, you're jamming a funnel in anything, in anything or anyone's orifice, it's, this is orifice size. You're you're on thin ice. <laughs> you're on thin ice. <laughs> funnel to change your oil, maybe. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Because I, I do what have about to get a whole lot of beer in your system very quickly. That's also that's your here, own here again. That's that's, it, that's <laughs> the opposite of your liver. That's well, the at, opposite of your liver. Okay, similarities between a funnel can, can, and on, a nipple. Can you hold that thought? Oh, go <laughs> ahead. Go ahead. Okay, you're feeding calves. You're bottle feeding calves. You're bottle feeding lambs. They'd line up for the nipple. 
And there's how much of a difference a is there funnel, between a funnel and a, a nipple? A funnel implies a, a lot. To me, a funnel implies yeah. to a, me a, that a there's a funnel is an involuntary action. I'm not talking about in your own is, experience, John. I'm saying related to the farm animal. Yeah, I'm pro nipple, anti funnel. I think we start the anti anti funnel foie gras. Society. Dude, yeah. you're, here's the thing, man. You're going to get in over your waders. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> this is a complicated world. Like they, there's a thing like Hudson Valley. There's a place. You know what? This is such a. This is not a well managed conversation. I need to back it up. First off, Ben O'Brien from Hunting Collective is here. Yes. Uh, the beautiful and lovely Ryan Callahan <laughs> um, is here, and John Edwards, and of course the Latvian Eagle. Now, okay, con. This is not a well-managed conversation, and there's a lot of parts floating around right now, so give me a second. Confit is, basically, it's like you're, you're, you're simmering meat in fat. It's an old-timey thing because what it does is you, you simmer it for many, you, you take meat and simmer it for many, many hours in fat and, rend, and rendered fat. So it's clean fat. There's not water in it and chunks of meat and whatnot in there and not blood, just pure fat. You render it in it. And then when you store it, you store it where it's the meat, the cooked meat is submerged under fat and it's an anaerobic environment. People, even to make it extra anaerobic environment, will often store it and then pour in a quarter inch of oil on top of it so that it's encased in fat. It's cured cooked meat encased in fat. And in the old timey days, you would take your pork confit or duck or whatever, and you go down and put it in the root cellar where it's kind of cool. And it was, it was a non-refrigeration storage technique. And like many of these techniques that came out of something practical, like smoking, right? Like smoking was invented because it would you could put meat and put smoke on it and dry it out. The smoke keeps insects away while it's volatile, right? Salting meat was a preservation technique. Over time, we don't need to do it anymore because we have fridges now and freezers and shit like that. But we do, it, 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 it affected our tastes and we now like smoke. So now you can even buy smoke in a bottle, which some guys think is a real sin, liquid smoke. But it's like... Smoking was a thing that came out of a practical consideration and entered into and became like a culinary tradition. Confit still tastes great. Uh, to make duck confit, what you do is you you cure, you just you're basically curing the legs for a couple of days in just putting salt on them and good stuff to eat on there. You can do it with citrus peels, garlic, uh, um, bay leaves. Some people put some pink salt on there to help the color to keep give it a nice color. You cure the meat for a couple of days and then you simmer it. You're supposed to simmer it in duck fat. But duck fat, to a guy, to a wild game man, duck fat is a pain in the ass. Uh, that's why, in, in trying to, now that I'm trying to like pick up the scraps here of our conversation, that's why we were bringing up the old thing, like that, you, that if a big fatty domestic duck will make enough fat to do its legs. When we've collected fat out of mallards and collected fat out of Canada geese, I feel like it takes 10 or 20 of the things to get enough fat to do even a small batch of confit. So what we started doing earlier, I would collect my own duck or goose fat and render it and then go online and buy duck fat for like astronomical amounts of money for little teeny tubs of duck fat. Quit doing that, would supplement with lard, and now I just do it with lard. 
and any fat I happen to have laying around. How's that? Well done. We caught up? Uh, Is that kind of pulling it together? Yes. Yeah, but why not just farm raise some ducks and make your own duck fat? I'm not a farmer. I'm a hunter. Okay. Well, that's a, that's a valid response. You ever read the Old Testament? Jacob and Esau? I'm Esau. Okay. Yeah, I, I, know, I know that. Yeah. Yanni's Jacob. Raising them ducks. Who gets to be Jesus? <laughs> I'm not touching that one. Easy, easy there. <laughs> so making the confit. And what we'll do is I will absolutely share that with you. You store it in the fat, and then what you do is you just reach in there and dig out a little bit of that goodness. It's all encased in fat, and you can put it under a broiler and crisp it up. Or you can pick the meat because you cook it for so long in the fat at like 180 degrees. You put a candy thermometer there and cook it for five or six hours at 180 degrees. And it's, but it's nothing like if you were boiling it in water. I mean, you're boiling it in fat. You can pick it, and it shreds. And then you put it under a broiler and it turns beautifully crispy. And then you make a salad and put that in the middle of the salad. Telling you what, son. People that don't like geese think geese don't taste good. They haven't had this. So did you guys uh, pluck all your geese? Plucked some of them. Plucked some of them. Um, You ate, you had a roast goose for Christmas, right? Yeah, but that was my brother shot that. Oh, okay. He brought that out. He gave me that goose for Christmas. Oh. Which is like weird. It's like giving a guy that, a coal miner coal <laughs> for Christmas. He's like, you know, I got you for Christmas, this goose. I was like, like, you don't say I got a bunch of those. And I was just messing with my freezer. Like you hit this on the highway on the drive over, didn't you? No, uh, so here, but I saved that fat because that goose I roasted in a pellet grill. Mm-hmm. A Christmas goose. You know a uh, Christmas Carol? Yeah. Charles Dickens. Biggest goose in all of London. Yeah. Bob yeah. Cratchit. He's trying to, he, want, he buys a Christmas goose. We roasted that goose in a pellet grill, but I was worried about all that fat causing me all kinds of trouble. So I put it on a rack over a roasting pan. That thing had a ton of fat. And I poured that fat off and saved that fat in my fridge. And then we were also pellet grilled two whole mallard skin on which put off more fat than the goose even. Wow. And saved all that. And I got that in my fridge right now. So where we're at on the confit process, we're basically, we did the prep and step one. So uh, I had never done this. I thought we were immediately going to start simmering stuff in fat, but you do a salt cure, mm-hmm. a dry, dry brine, um couple of days couple of days and then do you rinse that rinse all that off and then uh then it goes into the fat then rinse that all off dry it um pat it dry mm-hmm. then put it in the fat and then five or six hours at 180 degrees and then you uh pick the meat out because you'll have some settling in the bottom there'll be some funkation in the bottom of the pot okay pick the meat out put it all nicey nice into your container. In the olden times, one would store it in a crock, uh, which have kind of fallen out of favor, crocks. You'd store it in a ceramic crock. I put mine in a glass jar. Mm-hmm. With the fat or just the nope, meat? No, pick it out because there's the funkation in the bottom that you don't want. Yeah, right? but in old, time, in old times, you kept it in the fat, right? Well, I'm guessing you no, strain it out. Now. I'm not done yet. Oh, okay. Pick the meat out, 
and lay the meat all nicey-nice in your receptacle. <laughs> then you take the, the still liquid fat and pour it over while keeping one eye. Do you strain it? Just put a strainer on there? No. You could. No, because all the fungation goes to the bottom. All right. The fungation is at the bottom. So you get your, again, get your meat all laid out all nicey-nice, and then you pour the nice pure clean fat on it, watching to not get, when you get down to the water and whatnot that came out of the meat is in the bottom. Make sure not that, to get that in your container. Gotcha. If you strain it, that, that, the, the, any liquid that's in there is going to go that way anyways. Does oil float or sink? Cal? Oil must float. Yeah, oil does float because that's how they yeah. they spray that crap that that makes oil settle. When there's an oil spill. When there's an oil spill, yeah. yeah. So that's how you make it. Then you let it sit in your fridge for a couple weeks. I was reading your recipe week, card. And then you eat it. It said, uh, your recipe card said a month I've or kept, three months in the freezer. I've kept it in. Yeah, and, and the freezer thing, three months, that's my buddy who's a chef, so he's always careful about that kind of stuff. When I put something in the freezer, unless it's fish, I think of it as being like... Good in perpetuity. <laughs> <laughs> Once it's in the freezer, like, I'll eat that sometime in the next two years. But no, he's real, because he's, he's, he's a professional chef. Okay. Matt Weingarten. I just read on Food Republic's web- website, six months fridge. Yeah, I've left it in there a long wow. time. But again, like you'll tend to have chef guys being, you know, they're always like throwing out their spices after three months because they don't have quite the nice smell they once did. It's just different being a home cook and being a professional chef. Can you do goose confit? Yes, that's what we're making is goose confit. Which is better, duck or goose? Duck. I like the size of it better. Nothing wrong with the goose, but the size of it's nice. Because then you can put it in a wide mouth mason jar. It's hard to fish a goose's leg out of a wide mouth mason jar. But we're doing with Canada's. What about the pastrami? Are we ready to tackle that one? Talk about that, Cal. How'd you wind up with your special pastrami uh, cure? Oh, a buddy of mine that I met. uh, You know that conference that you and I went to down in Jackson Hole? Oh, yeah. Um, hard Shift. to forget. Yep. And, uh, it's almost some fists, almost some punches <laughs> thrown at Shift. Um, well, a great, uh, connection, um, that I made down there was, um, there was a guy who had a bunch of, he, I think he had like Buffalo Reuben sandwiches or something at the, at the, the dinner night, the night that you spoke. Um, and his place is called Sweet Cheeks Meats. It's a butcher shop down there in, in Jackson. And um, this guy's name is Nick, and it's him and his wife. And they, you know, he's like, yeah, man, I got nothing wrong with hunting. And he's like, but why would I ever hunt? Everybody just brings me meat. And uh, so I swung into so a why shop. why would I ever give a, get a job? Everybody just brings me money. Yeah. 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 I Which I, I totally understand that. <laughs> and... Uh, <laughs> And so I went in there and picked his brain the next morning on my way out of town, and, and we've just been kind of staying in touch. And, and uh, You guys became email buddies is what you're trying to say. Yeah, pretty yeah. much, yep. Um, but, you know, it's great having a butcher as a resource and chatting about different cuts and, and things. And they, they're like a whole animal butcher shop, so they're putting up tons of bone stock and, 
they're they're using everything and whatever they're not selling uh, to people, they're selling to people as dog food. Gotcha. Yeah. Uh, and it's a cool operation. But anyway, um, he gave me some duck pastrami one day and I thought that that cure that he used was really good. And oh. so the last time I went through, he's like, so hey, tailored. I got some of this. It's tailored to waterfowl. It is, but it's domestic waterfowl, mm-hmm. right? I was aiming to use the goose pastrami recipe that can be found in the Meat Eater Fishing Game Cookbook, available now everywhere books are sold. Um, but we diverted from that plan to use your buddy's stuff. Yeah, and uh, we're probably short a couple of key items in the in the recipe book too, judging from what we ran into last night too. So in the old yeah, in, in the Renella family spice cabinet. Yes. So yeah. we're making yeah. that pastrami. Yeah. Slap your mama. <laughs> no, I know that's a hot. I, I mentioned that last night, though. Did you? So yeah. It's a hot sauce. It is. It's good. First had it on uh, steelhead, I think. It's a good spice for steelhead. Oh, it's a dry spice. Yeah, slap your mama. Slap your mama. I think it started out as a hot sauce, right? I don't. I don't know about that. Oh, the way I've had it was a dry rub, and you liked it. Yeah, it was really good. Um, are you? Uh, do you like us less because we had this meat party and you weren't there? I'm a little disappointed. Yeah. When we so, share you know, some of it with you, you'll feel better. You know, when a guy stays up all night and drives all the way to Dylan, you know, it's, it's no love. Oh, dude, I feel really <laughs> guilty about it. Watch this transition. Um, you know that pastrami? What state was that made in again? That mix, Cal? Wyoming. Did you guys hear about the guy in Wyoming that uh, in September hunting the Wind River Range, hunting elk? I feel like you guys already know about this. We talked about this. You might not know about this. He's hunting elk. I just read about this yesterday and finds a bull pinned under two trees that fell over. No way. Live. No way. Yeah. Pinned by his right, his right beam is under two. He said roughly 10 inches in diameter, 25 feet long pinned down, been kicking all night, it looks like, because he's dug out a trough where his feet lay. He said there's dirt scattered up to like 20 yards away. Yep. And he's like, at this point, so tired that he's not really reacting to the dude standing there. He gets up to 20 yards, say, when he realizes. So was it it two bulls fighting and got wedged, or did it like literally? He postulated a theory in there that perhaps they were mixing it up. Couple bulls scrapping. I mean, what are the odds you're Dude. just cruising through the forest and yeah? But people get killed by. But think about it, people get killed by fallen limbs, man. Dude, I know. You, like we'll ride into clear trail in you know August or July, and it's unreal how many trees are friggin' on the trail. I mean, they come down. Yeah, I've been. I can't even tell you how many times I've been out in the woods, right? And you hear, you know, were you by yourself? Did it really happen? Yes. <laughs> if a tree falls in the forest. If you're by yourself and a tree falls, did it really happen? I think so. I think it made a loud racket too. <laughs> so if there's an elk under the tree, do you? Shoot? But yeah, it's just like it. It's just it's one of those weird things that, that has to happen. But to be out elk hunting, and the guy passed up a bull that day. It's, yeah, it's just bizarre, man. To go down and find a bull alive pinned under a tree. Crazy. He says his initial feeling was to cut it loose, but he ended up sticking an arrow into it. But he wasn't able to cut it loose. He tried to move the tree, it said. He tried, like, didn't have a chainsaw, of course. Yeah, you know, the problem is, and 
the problem is you never, right? Because one might be, I could picture a scenario in which one later, and I'm not accusing anyone of this at all. I could picture a scenario in which one might later um, tailor the story. I, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> You're, so you're saying I don't you know think. that it would be okay. I don't know that it would be that I uh, tried my damnedest, you know, and, and unable to find a way. I was at my wits end. I, I was resorted. My only last resort would be to to shoot it. The to only shoot humane it. thing to do. The only humane thing. I to don't do. know. I don't know. Don't know the feller. Don't know. I, I'm just picturing me. Um, Let's say Ike was stumbling through the woods and there's a live bull laying under a couple trees. Yeah, I don't know. I, I feel like I might, I probably, I feel like I would have tagged it. Yeah. Yeah. Depends on a lot of things. Yeah. I would have tagged it. I would have taken some pictures. I probably would have gone live on Instagram. <laughs> <laughs> hey guys, look at this. Um, yeah. And uh, I feel like people, there's probably a lot of people, Brody sent this to me. And he's like, I bet you people will be a little bit up in arms about this. I don't know that they will. I got a lot of, me and Yanni did a podcast where we talked about we would take a tree stand if it was left in the woods and, and people were like, I thought you had morals. I'm like, if it was left in the woods in public ground where it wasn't supposed to be there, it's trash, picking up trash. Yeah. This is kind of the similar thing. It's like on its face, it seems like something you may not want to do. But when you look at it you know, from a practical level, you should do it. Here's one, here's one for you. What do you do if you come across a in in bow season a, a dead bull, and that's recently expired? That just happened to my buddy Greg Blaskovich. And let's say it's a really nice bull. That's happened to him. <laughs> How nice! Let, <laughs> just happened. Let's say we survey that bow hunting public. What what do, what do guys do in that situation? Because I got a story happened two years ago. And a, a traditional archer came across. Oh yeah, you told me this story. Did but, I already but tell the, you this? The meat wasn't. The meat was gone. The meat was gone. Yeah, but it's a really nice bull. Okay, real quick. Yeah. I know a fella that just found a fresh dead bull, and he's, he did his damnedest. Yeah, he just, had just been shot. He did his damnedest to find the hunter. First, he sat there and waited and waited and waited, expecting some guy to come down along the blood trail. Yeah. No one shows up. He went up going and asking all around. The people camped, skinned it, butchered it, still kept looking for the owner. Yeah. So he, he wound up with the bull. Which you would hope most everybody would do. Yeah. But how many guys would really do that? Don't know. You know? Yeah, and it would definitely depend, unfortunately, on the size of the antlers. Well, that's what's so interesting about the story I told Steve is this was a turned out to be a you know 390 bull on public land and yeah for you uh for you uh gentle listeners out there that's a giant elk yeah bull and, of a lifetime and uh so so it was very cool what the guy did he uh he went online and po made a post that didn't reveal where it was just sort of in montana hey if you've shot a bull failed to recover it in montana you know, if you contact me and let me know where it was and what the fletching on your arrow was, I might have found your bull. <laughs> might have. <laughs> <laughs> if I like you enough, if you seem like a nice enough fella, I'll tell you. There's a version of events in which I find <laughs> your bull. There's a possibility. So sure, sure enough that the, 
the the archer contacted him and and he gave him a pin and he recovered you know his, his head and horns kind of a cool story that's yeah. amazing that is amazing that's the right thing to do but he yeah. did not pack the head and horns out correct he didn't he didn't touch it he just pinned it well and told uh the guy where it was and the guy came back from out of state long way and uh it had snowed two feet in the intervening weeks and uh hiked in there long ways and recovered it here's what i feel like i would have done <laughs> i feel like i would have found that and and probably would not have done all that and it, the perfect me would have but i don't even know that it would have really occurred to me like that i would have been huh and cool find yeah and i would have taken the head and hung it up in a tree somewhere so something didn't you know drag it off and bust the skull all up trying to get the brain out of it um hung it up in a tree somewhere with a with a uh thinking that at some point in time i'd go back in there once i had a little time to clean up from birds and whatnot that i'd go up there and bring it home and, and throw it out in the yard well because what are the chances that you post online wherever you post and the person that actually shot this thing is yeah. going to see it. Yeah, it was actually a buddy of his in Tulsa's serendipity that way. But yeah, it's like you got the angel and the devil, you know. And it's like, what, what do you do? And is it? But it wouldn't even that. It would have been like an indir- It wouldn't have been an angel and devil. It would have been sort of like an. It was just like I'm just talking about what what would have gone in my head. It wouldn't have been the push and pull. It would been like I would just. I would never. It would never even occur to me to try to find the person. You know what I'm saying? And it's obvious from the find that it was a fairly recent, it was that season. You know, there's a carcass and, you know, the meat was gone, but it was, it was obviously it wasn't last year's yeah. bull. No, I like it. It was, it was fi- noble of him to do it. And here's another one for you. Is it or is it not significant that the guy who did it was a traditional archer versus a non-traditional archer? Oh, come on. <laughs> you know what? No, no. You know what? I'll give, I'll give you that. I'll give you that. Okay, I'm going to give you that one. That's a bold statement. It's and a it, question. It's it not a statement. It struck me as a real arrogant. Are you a traditional archer? I'm just learning, actually. Okay, you know what? <laughs> Initially, yes. Okay, yes. Let me, okay, can let me, That's great. Let me, yes. I think that this is a bold-ass statement. And I'm not a traditional archer by any stretch. I did win a longbow contest when I was a kid, but it was only one other kid in it. I'm into it now. I, my um, buddy Frank Burkow, And I was a lot older than he was. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's cool. I picked one up at, the, at an archery challenge up in Big Sky last year. It felt great. Talked to guys about it. And my buddy Frank Burkowski, who introduced me, a guy named Dan Tolke, who's a fantastic bowyer, I guess is what you would say, up out of the flathead. Sure. Anybody know this guy? Dan Tolke, t- fantastic guy. And so, uh, yeah, I just, I just got a longbow, and it, it's, it's fun. Do you feel more responsible with a longbow? Do you feel <laughs> <laughs> he he treats his wife so much better I'm, now. I'm more morally sound now. I am so in over my waders right now. It's not funny. <laughs> if but. I pick up a quarter on the street, I'll stand there and He's wait. like, normally I'd, I wouldn't even call my wife. I'd just go out drinking all night. But, you know, now that I got that longbow, <laughs> get her some flowers. Um, no, it's a bold statement, but yes, do like if you took a hundred, if you took a hundred traditional archers and a hundred compound archers, and then did a sort of ethics and moral <laughs> exactly survey, I do feel just I just have a feeling that they would score higher. Scout. But you know, I was thinking the other day, I was thinking about what it is. Why why do I like and hang out with hunters? Okay, I was thinking about this the other day. Like, like if I go to a wedding reception and you're like, oh my God, I don't want to go to this thing. 
I'll typically, at, by the end of the night, I'm talking to some dude that likes to hunt and fish. I just sniff them out, you know? And I was thinking, if you were in some situation where your house is on fire, okay, and you're somehow incapacitated and your children need to be rescued and the fireman says, listen, because of circumstances I can't explain right now, only one person can go in and do the rescue. We have a guy that hunts all the time and a vegan. Who do you want to, to attempt the rescue? I mean, come on. Come on. Yes. So it's like. There's a shit ton of blasphemy in this podcast. <laughs> I love it. Anyone. Oh. Anyone is going to be like, well, clearly. The, get the hunt dude in there to go. Uh, you never seen like the weightlifting vegans, you know? <laughs> I just think like that's going to be the guy that's going to go in there. With the gur factor. He's going to go in there with a lot of gur and yeah. just get the kids and come like, out. Quick, let me get my longbow and I'll decide whether I want to go in. So yes, in, in, in that, in the I same, just want the record the to be same, clear. <laughs> hey, I just want the record to be clear that it was a question, and I'm not siding with the traditional archers over the compound archers or anything like that. This it, bears one like, could also yeah. point out that a traditional archer might like to do what's that word? Moral signaling, virtue signaling. He might like to. He might be a virtue signaler, and what greater way to virtue signal than to go on to a forum? And be like, boy, did I find the bull of a lifetime laying out in the woods, but not going to touch it. Exactly. Signed, Pope and Young lifetime <laughs> member. Yeah. And he like, dude, I just saw a post of a traditional archer with a, a grip and grin photo. He shot a, a vole, like a, like a mouse. Mm-hmm. With his traditional archery gear, so he would score low. And he so, would lower so he, the mean. <laughs> the mean. He would lower the mean ethics score of his compatriots. Man, between streaming services, fitness apps, and delivery services, it's never ending. I'm talking about the, the the subscriptions, the monthly dings on your credit card. Well, thanks to Rocket Money, I'm no longer wasting money on the ones I forgot about. Rocket Money is a personal finance app. It goes in and finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions. Meaning, you know, like, let's say there's like a show that comes out and you want to watch it and you wind up doing like this free trial and you forget about it. And then two years later, you realize you're paying those hosers 12 bucks a month for something you don't use. It finds that stuff, cancels it and helps lower your bills so you can grow your savings instead. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all the app's features. With Rocket Money, I have full control over my subscriptions and a clear view of my expenses. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. That's rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Again, rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. I want to tell you about an American-made success story and Black Buffalo's award-winning nicotine pouches. Black Buffalo was built by dippers with decades of smokeless tobacco use. Black Buffalo is all about the history and tradition of dip, but they understand the convenience and discretion modern-day consumers are looking for. Black Buffalo's nicotine pouches give you the versatility to consume discreetly, but keep the ritual with flavors dippers love. 
Mint, straight, and wintergreen, all proudly made right here in the USA. Tell them, Chili. The reason I like black buffalo pouches is, one, they're very discreet. And what I mean by that is I can throw one in and almost forget it's there. And I prefer the mint pouches. So if you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the black buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. Hey everybody, I'm talking here about Montana Knife Company from our very own state of Montana. This company was founded by one of the most experienced master bladesmiths in the world, Josh Smith, who, over recent months, I've become friends with. And my God, have I learned a lot about knives from this guy. Just a phenomenal hometown company that makes world-renowned knives. Josh has been making knives for 30 years. You get one of these knives up and open it, it is sharp like something that came from outer space. And here's the deal. They make knives that can be sharpened. You can work on these knives. If you don't want to work on them, you send it to them and they'll work on it. They'll get it sharp. Phenomenal hunting knives. If you want to see them in action, we just did, uh, me and uh, John Hayes, the taxidermist, just did a video about how to properly skin a black bear. Um, watch that video. And in that video, you'll see Montana Knife Company knives in action. MKC products usually sell out in minutes of being released, which is true. But now for the first time, they're dabbling with having knives in stock on their site. So right now you can grab yourself a Blackfoot 2.0 or the Ultralight Speed Goat. Use code MEATEATER and you get 10% off your first order. Montana Knife Company, working knives for working people, 10% off with the code MEATEATER. That's a good deal. It was a trophy vole for a traditional archer. Yeah, but what, it, it, he why? didn't eat the vole. That's what I was like. You know what he might have been fixing to do? Well, that's a good point. He might be so hardcore that he's going to do a, his shelf liner instead of oh, doing it in felt or hair. leather. He's going to do hair. a vole hair because he's so good at stalking that when he gets up close, he finds that the noise of his wooden shaft on felt is too loud. I'm a little uncomfortable because right. I feel like we're starting to rip the on the traditional hair. archer. No, yeah, yeah. Because Cal's a traditional archer. The, and Yanni's a traditional archer. The bull Yanni's hair. a traditional archer? Not Some really. Days. He's uh, not a traditional bow hunter. He goes both ways. He's not a traditional hunter. He's a archer. traditional archer. My brother, Danny, is a traditional hunter. And Cal is a traditional hunter. So when Danny goes out, the only bow he hunts with, how often does he hunt archery? Or Never. with archery? Never. But if he does, he likes to bring his longbow because he lives in the land of the long winter Yeah, in Alaska. But I don't understand. I don't and so understand. he likes to sit around drinking beer, shooting recurves. Oh, okay. Standing, stand around drinking beer, shooting recurves in the winter. So at times he has taken said recurve out and shot it at things. Yeah. Yeah, that is one uh, note for you there, John. Um, if uh, you're just getting into the traditional side of things, uh, recurve is 
night and day difference easier than longbow. So I, so I screwed up already easier. basically what? getting the longbow is what you're saying. It just is, man. Like the consistency out of my recurve, I need another year of like real shooting. I that In fact, when I moved up here to Bozeman with only things that I could put in my truck, I brought my longbow so I could can figure Continue out how to, to start hone, shooting to the thing as fast as possible. Yeah. But the longbow just feels like more traditional. <laughs> yeah, well, Adelaide. Adelaide, that's what that's But that's, Adelaide, dudes, the kind of dude that hunts with an Adelaide is a different kind of dude than hunts with a recurve. Yeah, for sure. Well, I hope so. For sure. But I, there was a guy, I met a guy, and he was like trying to convince me to, to pick up a recurve. And I said, I've tried before, and it just never stuck with me. And he said, I said, where'd you learn it? He said, well, I learned it on YouTube. I said, don't you think that's a little bit oxymoronic? <laughs> don't, you think that's, don't you feel like that's a little bit ironic that you learn your traditional archery from fucking the internet? That's pretty like, funny. That's pretty funny. I like that. that um, where do you go? You know, where do you go traditional archery hunting? Well, let me check my GPS. I'll tell you. Like, yeah, you want these are excellent or not? Well, here's the thing about my brother, like the ethics of my brother. You want to talk about have, be, having high ethical standards as a traditional archer? Check this out. Every traditional archer gets arrows that are painted to be That's fake. That's true. Yeah, well, I know because my brother's an exception. He was un, ethically uncomfortable having the carbon arrows that everyone gets that have a wood wrap. Yeah, that's what I got. It's kind of weird. He went out. He's like, I can't do that. I can't live a lie. And so he went out and, and had to struggle to find uh, arrows for his shaft. recurve. No, that were carbon and looked carbon. Oh. Where they weren't masquerading as wood. What is with that with you guys? Well, I don't <laughs> think the you people, you people argument is one that you really want to go down. But it's just the fact, it's just, it's a, it's better. You know, you you're not breaking as many arrows. You don't have to deal no, 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 with no, 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 Why does it have to look like No, wood, my problem is, is not shooting carbon. My problem is why do you guys make it look, why, who are you trying to trick? Oh, nobody. I'm like, there is an inexpensive arrow. No, okay, you're not listening. No, to no, I am. For me personally, Demonstrate to me there is no to me. part of like, oh, here's this selection of arrows. I have to have the one that looks like wood because now I'm shooting a traditional bow. It just so happens that arrow manufacturers such as like Easton and Beeman, they have pre-fletched with real turkey veins only the arrows with this fake wood sheath over the top of it. It's the exact same arrow as I think an Axis arrow, which is a very common arrow, but it's one grain per inch heavier because it has this additional faux wood uh, laminate on, on top of it. Yeah. Laminate's probably not even right. That was a good detail, Cal. It was good. Yeah. I, I don't even... Do you really in? Yeah, please. I don't even think it's the archers themselves that this problem spawns from. It's some marketing dudes. And they started it, and so it's just like been. They like produced the first 10,000 arrows because they thought that, well, of course, these guys that are shooting these old-timey wooden bows, they're going to want these old-timey wooden-looking arrows. And it, it was never like a group of traditional archers being like, hey, Easton, God, we love shooting your aluminum or your, gra or your carbon arrows, but you know, if you guys could paint them up to make it look like wood, we'd be so much happier. And what is really funny is... I've gone, you know, some spots around Ketchum where I, 
have like good uh, north facing slopes that have like good uh, loamy soil, soft soil, because it's real rocky country. Yeah. Um, go out and zip out of town, go stump shoot, right? Shooting old rotten stumps with, yeah, I'm, I'm following. with the recurve. And I have found other arrows out there where I'm like, <laughs> oh, <laughs> there's my arrow that I lost last time. And it's not my arrow, but it is like the wooden shaft arrow. Can I, or the fake wood I get, I get, I'm I, running behind. There's so hilarious. many things I want to bring up right now. I need to write them down. <laughs> I can't get, what I can't get, of like the, the marketing of traditional archery equipment. Like, do they bring it in your house in a horse and buggy? The, what the hell does it matter? What, you it, know, according what, to the of, folks in the, in the archery equipment industry, it is such a ridiculously small group of people out there that, um, there, whoever made the marketing decision, and Giannis, I think you are spot on. That was a long time ago, and nobody's thought about it since. I don't buy it. I don't buy it for a second. Would you wear? Let me ask you. What this. kind of rat you smell in there? Would Ella? you wear? Okay. Yeah. Let's say First Light makes some bitchin' synthetic clothes, but like you know what? We're gonna uh, instead of having to be camo, it's gonna look like it's buckskins, and we're gonna put we're gonna paint fringe on it and have so that way when you're out in the woods it looks that at a passing glimpse you'd be like oh that fellow's wearing buckskins but he's not it's synthetic of course not no is that a real coonskin hat nope no it's not it's poly pro (laughs) (laughs) i just painted it to look like i'm out in the woods it's not important it doesn't it's not important enough to to converse about no, I mean, it's a is thing funny. that I have. It it's is. a thing I have noticed. I grew up hunting with guys that would go out in buckskins with patch and round ball, 50 cal hawk, yeah. and, and hunt that they had no optics, no nothing. Those guys are called buckskinners. Yeah. I was interested in the buckskin in the world as a young kid because I yeah. knew guys that were buckskinners. Yeah. And that, that I, you know, I said I had so many things I wanted to bring up that I had to write make, them down. Write them down. Mm-hmm. Here's one of the things I just wrote when I was a little kid. You know, are you talking about shoot, going stump shooting and finding other arrows? Yep. When I was a little kid, I remember vividly, and I could tell you where I was standing when I heard it. In the parking lot of the uh, Muskegon Bowman's Bow Club, a guy telling me, if you really want to find Indian arrowheads, here's how you do it. He was saying that he goes out in the woods and will sort of imagine shooting lanes of yore. Okay? So like a, a, a opening through the trees where he could picture someone having taken a shot a thousand years ago. And he would then go over there and look around to see if he could find the lost Indian arrowhead. Boy. We gotta have, we gotta have, we gotta have some time on our hands. This man. is the dumbest person. But, but in I've, reviewing it in my mind now. Did you were like, no, you, were, no, you but, were in old growth forest the entire time? Now that I have the luxury of taking a pause to review this in my mind, I wonder if he wasn't just yanking a kid's chain. Well, now, out here on the Great Plains, right, that does stand up. As far as like, okay, a Pishkin Buffalo jump site. Yes. Um, old water holes are places that, you know, cave sites, things like that. Mm-hmm. And that does take that theory, right? That 
imagination of days of yore being like, okay, this is a natural pass. Been here for thousands of years. Through this pass, there's a high point. There's a water, there's an old dried up uh, pond area underneath it. Boy, I bet that would have been a good place to camp and wait for animals to come into that pond. And work on my heads. Work on my heads. And then at that pond, you could probably spend some time and find bird points. Yes. Or small game points. Or, I agree with that because I've successfully found um, arrowheads, old stuff, with anthropologists whose approach was to go to likely observation points and likely campsites on the Arctic slope where there hasn't been anyone wandering around picking it all up. And you'd be like, man, I could picture hanging out up there yeah. waiting for waiting for wild horses to roll through and during the Pleistocene. But putting and go that up there in the and, and upper find peninsula stuff. with like giant old growth <laughs> timber and th- that would be a pretty daunting task. It was outlandish. <laughs> uh, real quick question before we move on. You good, Ben? Well, yeah, I'm, I'm good. Um, okay. And I, I, if you, the, you remember the house on fire scenario? Yes. Okay, picture that you're in that situation. And knowing that you, you have no children, imagine that it's your, your mother and grandmother, say. And imagine you're a vegan? No, and it's that you're there incapacitated, and they can let the one person run in, and they have a compound shooter and a trad guy. That's all you know about the potential rescuers. What way are you leaning for I the got, rescue? I got my answer. I'll wait for Cal, but... I'm going trad guy. Really? I'm going compound guy well, all day. There's a lot of passive compound The trad shooters. guy is a old. A lot of passive. If they said hardcore compound guy. The trad guy is old. He can't get up the ladder. That's good. <laughs> <laughs> there's no way. Too methodical. <laughs> you go? He's going to be thinking about like, listen, all right, what the compound guy's just going to run stupidly forward. <laughs> get in there and get it get done. In there, yeah. get it but done. then he's going to stop 100 yards away. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> so what's your answer? Your mother and grandmother. I, for some reason, my first instinct was to say compound guy. So I'm just going to go go with compound guy. Yeah, that's the obvious answer. I feel like you were patronizing Cal a little bit with your answer, Steve. No, is that, is that true or no? No, no, I wasn't intending to. I don't. I just I think of guys that I know uh, in. Uh, couple of firehouses, a couple of fire city fire guys I know. They're all compound guys. Oh, so you're thinking you might actually wind up with a fireman by making that selection. Yeah. Okay. I bet you anything, we hear from a fireman who's a trad archer. <laughs> I will be watching for his email. Uh, moving on real quick. This is interesting. They found, there's a species of snake, a before, okay, Chiapas, Mexico. 42 years ago, they don't explain how this happened. 42 years ago, some cane, some palm harvesters working in the Mexican state of Chiapas. Am I saying that right? Chiapas? Yeah. Well, I'll go with that. They find a snake. They find a coral snake. And in its gut, um, so whatever reason, they decided to cut it open. And if, yeah, if you're a palm cutter and you run into a coral snake, I imagine you're killing it. That oh, coral yeah. snake because oh. he'll get you while He'll you're snap, in there working. Yep. So they killed a coral snake. 
and they disembowel it for whatever reason and find a snake in it that they did not recognize, hadn't seen it before. Someone preserves the specimen. 42 years goes by. It's a 10-inch long male snake with two peckers, a double-peckered snake. Uh, 42 years later, they do the genetics work on it. And not only is it a new species, it's its own genus. Completely undescribed. Watch this segue. Oh, go ahead. The defining uh, attribute, I guess, would be the two-pecker versus one-pecker. No, I guess it's not that. I just like that part of the story. But um, who wouldn't? They have yeah, like I mean, a, a, a snakes will have like thorns, like little burrs on yeah. there, on there, like ducks, tallywhacker, if you will. Um, this one is a double, double. It'd be, it'd be fun to deal. just know like how they got. <laughs> is that how? Yeah, it's not a new spe- species, right? K- Kingdom phylum class order genus species, right? You'd have to dig deeper into it. So yeah, I'm sorry that I'm not able to answer that. All right. Sorry, go ahead. But yeah, it, it's like uh, they think that perhaps it's a ground-dwelling, insect-eating snake. And you might be like, well, maybe it's now extinct because they have no one had ever found one. And then 42 years ago, a snake ate one, and no one's found one since then. But it's probably just, it kind of opens up, like there's just a lot of mystery out there. Which is People are describing new species all the time, but oftentimes it winds up being that you're taking something you kind of already know. Like there's some stonefly, right? And the stonefly has six bands on its abdomen or whatever. And you realize the next drainage over, there's a stonefly that's got seven bands. Like, oh my God, it's a new species. But you look and it's, he's like very closely related to a known one. It's interesting that we can still be out there discovering something as significant as a 10-inch snake that isn't like super close. It's not just like a a little slightly different than the one found in Guatemala, but it's like an entirely new genus of snake that we didn't know about. Yeah, you would think there'd be plenty of them given the two-pecker situation. Mm -hmm. Twice as many. Twice as many. They'd propagate well. But maybe it doesn't work. Maybe every man's dream, (laughs) every man's dream. It's too complicated. Is actually actually a detriment. Uh, and, and, And I'll pivot off that point to talk about that, Perhaps, I think that this would enlighten and embolden all of those people who wrote in about our Bigfoot show. Because the Bigfoot responses were, one, uh, half the people that wrote in about the Bigfoot show we did with a, with a person who had, had explored the, the world of Bigfoot people. Um, half the people that wrote in were like, I can't believe you would even honor that subject with a conversation. The other half were like, bro, I didn't believe either. And then I met one or ran into one or had one throw a rock at me. And the thing that really surprised me out of this was the people, we joked at length about people who, who, Bigfoot people who say that like you have an obligation to shoot one if you see it, because that's a step toward, that's a step toward saving them. That if you kill a Bigfoot, then it'd be that you'd, it, we'd have to recognize it as a species. We'd almost certainly have to recognize it as an endangered species. And it can't get a Linnaean name. It'll always be a mythical creature until someone kills one. But that conversation brought the fact that there are people out there shooting, like really in real life, shooting at stuff that they think is Bigfoots. 
which is a dangerous practice. I had a guy write it's in. happened here in Montana. Yeah, just happened. That story's a little fishy. Yanni, go ahead. Yanni's a subject matter expert on this story. No, well, I tried to be. I tried to research it, but it seems that like the story is falling dead. <clears throat> I didn't have time to call the police department of, was it Helena or Missoula that it happened nearby? I'm going to talk about one from Texas, but you go ahead and talk about this one. But the Montana I, I think it's one. Helena. Helena, yeah. Helena, you're right. Yeah. A fellow was shot at, and then the dude that was doing the shooting claimed that he was shooting at him because he thought he was Bigfoot. And last we knew, they had not apprehended the shooter. Nobody was hit. That's what the story seems weird. John, what's the bar on the west side of Rogers Pass? Um, the little town there. It's starting to get kind of repopulated now because folks are spreading out from Helena. You're going to tie this in this big town. deal? Yeah, because okay. the bar right <laughs> there. No, if, that, if you're going to do that, go ahead. Has big, like a big <laughs> No, foot. Cal just remembered the great drink he had there. <laughs> Why would you assume I would know the they name of They got a cocktail walk? there called the Bigfoot. <laughs> well, because you've been in Montana a long time. I, I mean, it's not Trixie's. Not no, Trixies. no, no. This is this is right on the west side of uh, Rogers, Rogers Pass, Pass. and uh, there's a bar right there, um, and they have, I think it's a weekend long, like Bigfoot hunt party that goes on on private property, off off side of the bar, and then they come back to the bar, and it's. A, and there's buses and all sorts of and stuff. And they're so, hunting. So that could stand a reason why maybe this guy didn't pick up on the fact that it's a good excuse for a party. Mm. Maybe he was like, okay, this is an epicenter of Bigfoot activity. Yeah. Right. We should have done a good job of finding the, 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 the would-be victim and, and talking to him. But, but my understanding of the story, he was, cite, he was citing in yeah. The would-be victim was sighting this rifle. Yeah. And all of a sudden, blouch, blouch, blouch. And there's bullets hitting all around him. And he winds up having a conversation, according to his story, he has a conversation with the shooter. Shooter's like, bro, you should wear Hunter's Orange. I thought you was a Bigfoot. And opened up on you. And he drives off in a... Black Ford pickup. Yep. And then the guy, the would-be victim, isn't interested in pursuing this or pressing charges and doesn't even notify the police till a day later, apparently. He's got no beef with the guy. Took him a day to think. He's got man. no truck. He's got no truck with the man who almost killed him. That's crazy. So I just, like, I don't know. A lot of times, you know, when someone tells you a story and you, at the end of the story, you're like, man, there's got to be more to that story. Mitch Hedberg used to talk about taking drugs for attention deficit disorder even though he doesn't have attention deficit disorder and anytime someone told him something at the end of it he'd be like man there's gotta be more to that story (laughs) (laughs) i hate to say i hate to say it but i think i side with the half of the people who wrote in like why are you talking about bigfoot I'm sorry, hey, guys. Because like, like, here's like, it doesn't surprise me that a guy gets shot at sighting in his rifle. That doesn't surprise me. I'm I'm sad to say. Yeah, but shot at or accidentally but, shot. But at. when the when when the defense to the crime is, I thought oh, I thought he was Bigfoot. That, that's what. Well, here's where it becomes. Here's where the rubber meets the road. John is a guy wrote in, and this is a guy I'd talked with before, emailed with before, and he he's he belongs to this North American Wood Ape Conservancy, and they feel as though. They have. Wait a minute. Check, hear me out. He feels as though 
they have identified a valley in Texas near the, I think it's near the Texas Oklahoma border. They have identified a valley that is inhabited by a small population of big feet that they feel is endangered by habitat loss. And they've had, I think like 40, his group of guys that are researching this, this imperiled population of wood apes. They feel like they've had 42 run-ins and they have a document they put out. And in this document, it details members of his group shooting at bipedal organisms with buckshot and winging them and blood trailing them and sending the blood off to the lab and seeing stuff off in the dark and trying to get shots at it and saying that we need to move away from buckshot and switch to slugs and they're out in the dark with flashlights. Here, here again, man, people Dude. shooting at bipedal organisms does not surprise me. It's troubling, for, it's troubling to me. It is troubling to me as well. And it, it makes me not want to hunt. That makes me not want to <laughs> That's like, all it's the headline. Not necessarily yeah, the place out, you want to go. You're hunt. out hunting there and you're out late and you're you're like, oh my God, I forgot my flashlight, and you're cutting off through the bushes at night. And furthermore, it doesn't In surprise me suit. that there's a there's a <laughs> national bipedal wood ape conservation group out there. That doesn't surprise me either. This goes back to our model of conservation. I don't have any problem. I don't have any problem with going out in the woods looking for stuff. It's like, great, go out in the woods, look for stuff. I have a real problem with going out, firing away, firing away at things walking through the woods. Isn't there something we learn in Hunter's education called (laughs) know your target and beyond? Or are we just now wanging away at bipedal organisms? No, we are not. Officially, we are not just wanging away at anything. Don't know wang. your target and beyond. No wanging. <laughs> I mean, Don't wang at anything. I think every 12-year-old would say that. But the whole Bigfoot thing to me, again, it's like this is postmodern America. And if, if you don't know what postmodernism is. Pomo. Look it up. Because <laughs> to me, Bigfoot is a postmodern phenomenon. But there's guys he, like legitimate guys like Les Stroud. I don't know if... if we all think Les Stroud is legitimate. The Survivor Man. I have no problem with him. The Survivor Man went all in on Bigfoot. I think, but a lot of people do. This guy says, the guy that wrote in, this guy even says that they, were, they, they believe they were able to self-tag a wood ape with a nanotag radio transponder, transponder and tracked it for 10 months, attempted to close in with the animal, came very near at times, um, got a lot of geographical data on it, and they feel as though they were able to calculate a potential home range for the species. <laughs> Bullshit. <laughs> Excuse me. No, it's, an, it's just, listen. Just reply. I don't want to spend let a lot of time on this. Let me know when you get one. Like, let me know when you can, you have nets? You ever, like, net one? Well, it Dig a hole, put why, some sticks over it. Yeah, we can dart a rhinoceros. Let's yeah. dart one. Dart one. Here's why you can't trail cam them. I'm not going to say anything more about this. Again, I am like, I do not for a second. Everyone knows my opinions. I'm just talking about, it's like an interesting, like we, you dip your toe into the world. It was interesting to watch. Like I had, we, we had a guest on a couple episodes ago who did a podcast series of, where she explores the world of Bigfoot enthusiasts. And I thought, huh, that's interesting. And had a conversation with her. And it was just funny to look at it was funny to see the the, the 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 feedback that came in. I remain, at, like, if you want to hear my opinions on it, they're unchanged. Listen to the episode. But it was fascinating 
to see the mental gymnastics that people go through in order to keep this notion alive. For instance, that um, you can't get a trail cam image of them because they see somehow infrared. And they can tell when there's, and there's, there's sounds that like a trail cam emits feelings that they detect. It emits electromagnetic radiation. Yeah, it's like right. hunting with hex. Yeah. And I was just going to say wrap you, it in the hex suit. And they even say, a guy was <laughs> even good. saying, in fact, a Bigfoot's aversion to trail cams is so strong that if you have a Bigfoot messing with your house all the time, just put trail cams up and he won't come around anymore. And he'll stop messing with your house, firing rocks at your house all the time. That's a helpful safety That's tip. all. Yeah. It's just like dudes that have ghost hunting TV shows on like some channel nobody watches. If that was happening, it would happen on like the news. 60 minutes. Yeah. If somebody, <laughs> fi- like, if somebody find a Bigfoot, it'll happen on, like you'll see it on the, but here it is. The new, oh, that's the why new. you don't need to follow it. It's yeah, gonna, yeah. It's not even worth it. Yeah. I, I, what do you got, Yanni? I, like, I feel bad for having brought it up. And at times I vowed to stop talking about stuff and then broke my vow. Yeah. <laughs> That's that old joke, right? It's, it's, uh, there's no such thing as a shortcut. If it was the shortest, fastest route, it would just be called the way. <laughs> All right, man. But, you know, I've broken my vow, but I'm going to make a vow. <laughs> <laughs> I, I made a vow to stop dogging on people who like super crafty beers and Texicans. What about your What vow. about your mug vow? Last time I was on, you broke were, that vow. Yeah, I break vows all the time, but I'm vowing right now for real, for keeps. I'm vowing to stop talking about damn Bigfoots. Oh, thank God! But what Big about beats. what about wood apes? Them too. Them too. Okay. I lump those. <laughs> Put them together. Bipedal. What do you got, Yanni? I'm sick of hearing myself come you, up with ready, Bigfoot stuff. You ready to leave Bigfoot? Yeah. Okay. Did you know Rocket Money can cancel a subscription for you? They'll even alert you when there's been an increase in a subscription price and negotiate rates for you. I can see my subscriptions in one place, and if I see something I don't want, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with just a few taps. You wouldn't believe how many people are paying for subscriptions they don't use. This happened to me. It's annoying. This helps you find it out and get rid of it. Well, Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions and monitors your spending and helps lower your bills so you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. That's rocketmoney.com slash meat eater. Rocketmoney.com slash meat eater i want to tell you about an american-made success story and black buffalo's award-winning nicotine pouches black buffalo was built by dippers with decades of smokeless tobacco use black buffalo is all about the history and tradition of dip but they understand the convenience and discretion modern day consumers are looking for black buffalo's nicotine pouches give you the versatility to consume discreetly but keep the ritual with flavors dippers love 
Mint, straight, and wintergreen, all proudly made right here in the USA. Tell them, Chili. The reason I like black buffalo pouches is, one, they're very discreet. And what I mean by that is I can throw one in and almost forget it's there. And I prefer the mint pouches. So if you're 21 or older, consume nicotine or tobacco and want to join the black buffalo herd, head over to blackbuffalo.com to learn more. You can order nicotine pouches online. They ship directly to most states or check out their store locator to purchase pouches at thousands of retail locations around the country. Black Buffalo Tobacco Alternative. Bold flavor, full pouches. Warning, this product contains nicotine. Nicotine is an addictive chemical. Black Buffalo products are intended for adults age 21 and older who are consumers of nicotine or tobacco. Hey everybody, I'm talking here about Montana Knife Company from our very own state of Montana. This company was founded by one of the most experienced master bladesmiths in the world, Josh Smith, who, over recent months, I've become friends with. And my God, have I learned a lot about knives from this guy. Just a phenomenal hometown company that makes world-renowned knives. Josh has been making knives for 30 years. You get one of these knives up and open it, it is sharp like something that came from outer space. And here's the deal. They make knives that can be sharpened. You can work on these knives. If you don't want to work on them, you send it to them and they'll work on it. They'll get it sharp. Phenomenal hunting knives. If you want to see them in action, we just did, uh, me and uh, John Hayes, the taxidermist, just did a video about how to properly skin a black bear. Um, Watch that video. And in that video, you'll see Montana Knife Company knives in action. MKC products usually sell out in minutes of being released, which is true. But now for the first time, they're dabbling with having knives in stock on their site. So right now you can grab yourself a Blackfoot 2.0 or the Ultralight Speed Goat. Use code MEATEATER and you get 10% off your first order. Montana Knife Company, working knives for working people, 10% off with the code MEATEATER. That's a good deal. Speaking of uh, tough animals nice. to find and that see in good. the woods, if you guys haven't caught on yet, we have a thing here on the Mediator Podcast where we just try to out-segue each other. You guys can all join in at any time, and, and uh, then someone else should do the rating of yeah, the Yeah, pulled off a double segue. I tried, but you guys, I don't know if you guys gave me the thumbs up for actually pulling it off. Anyways, in this case, you could say, speaking of segues. <laughs> Very good. Like a, yeah. Mark asks, uh, what is the toughest combination of animal and environment to spot while hunting? So, you mean, I think he's asking, like, out of all the stuff that we hunt and all the different places that we hunt, what's, like, what's the toughest animal to spot in its environment? His example is a white-tailed deer standing White tailed deer in a standing cornfield, which I would say that it's impossible to spot <laughs> that. <laughs> I see the tassels I, moving. The top, you know what's what do they hard? Call the top of the corn? Yeah. yeah I like the yeah. tassels. It's hard to spot a deer behind a brick wall, too. Yeah. You can't see them. Yeah, that's okay. Because that, that's, are well, you talking about like you, it's, it's in wide open, you could see it, but it's camouflaged by its environment. That's, that's a good way of putting it. Like that's what. Nice. Yeah. Because if it's in, like the, if it was behind standing corn, you probably can't see it anyway. Yeah, and I think we should narrow it down to uh, like it would be possible to see it. Yeah, it's, land land mammals, land right? Mammals, yeah, yeah. Because no it's reason. hard to spot halibut. Well, yeah, in even like <laughs> three hundred feet of water. 
I was gonna take out waterfowl. Yeah, yeah, not, yeah. Like, uh, yeah, animals, animals, land mammals. I say the gray ghost. Yeah, I mean that's definitely the first one that comes to mind. Or the coos deer. I've never hunted coos deer. That's the gray ghost. No, that's the. Oh, I, I thought mean, the gray ghost things was mule deer. Yeah, gray ghost is the coos. They're famous for being hard to spot. I think that a mule deer, because when. Um, when the snow, when you get snow and the snow starts to melt off and it's splotchy, patchy, that makes spotting mule deer very difficult. Is it, because easy, is it easier to do but to eliminate the things that are easy to spot always? Like a moose? A moose in the snow is pretty easy to spot. But they can still vanish in a willow thicket. That's true. But yeah, I think that when, because when you're looking for mule deer, you're looking for the bodies of the butts. The bodies on the snow are real easy, and the butts out in the sagebrush are easy. But when you get splotchy snow, your eye doesn't trigger on the butts or the bodies. Yeah, so you've got natural camo, and and it would make sense that coos deer's a smaller-bodied creature, so it's going to be more difficult to spot. I think you could make an argument for a black-tailed deer. Yeah, coastal coastal black-tailed deer can be very difficult to spot in all the dark shadows. Yeah. That's hard to spot. I think easy to spot. Um, one of the easiest things to spot that I've found is when you have black bears in the alpine. Holy smokes. Like iridescent black blobs you can spot from a couple miles away with the naked eye. <laughs> yeah. Like green background and then this iridescent blob. Well, and, and spring black bear in general, just even locally around here, it's, that's a that's a good good job finding them you know you look at a lot of stumps before you see one stand up and walk around you know yeah here's one kind of off the continent um himalayan tar and the tussock flats of new zealand when they get up like below the alpine and they're hanging out that's tough it's tough like a tussock like the tussock it's just the grass looks exactly like the hair off a tar hunting whitetails in michigan this year was pretty fun where being out one day and there's no snow and being out the next day and there's snow and man you just because it's a lot of tall brush and a lot of thorn you know like multiflora rose thickets but that snow hits and all of a sudden you're like deer 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 that you would not have caught without oh yeah i mean man it makes white, me vulnerable white tail in the rut depending on the you know what's on the ground and what conditions i mean it can be really hard to find you know, you can you can know there's a buck right a hundred yards in front of you, and you might see an ear, you might see a, an antler, you know, but they can freaking get on their hands and knees and crawl with the best of them. A guy wrote in, and he swears this is true. He says he was sitting on a power line in Texas. I think he was in Texas. He says he saw a buck coming along. He says I would never believe if someone told me this, but I saw it with my own two eyes. He said he saw a buck coming along got to a power line cut and got down on its knees. I don't know. I got <laughs> down on its knees and crossed the power line cut on its knees and then stood back up and walked off into the woods. I have a difficult time with that. You have, I don't know. Like, you have a difficult time with that, but not with the bipedal mountain ape scenario? No. <laughs> 
very different. <laughs> I have. That's the. I mean, you see, you see. I wanted to see if you would break your your sworn oath. I'm. I'm. Oh, I forgot about that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. That's an inner. Have you ever heard anything like that? A buck getting down on his knees, I've never walking heard around. I've never I seen have. a white you, tail. You've, you've seen a white tail get on his knees. I've, I've seen deer hunger. I've seen deer slunch slump down and try to keep a low pro. I've seen a whitetail buck on his knee front knees getting through underbrush and stuff. Really? Yeah. But not but he was saying here he was but like keeping know. a low pro. To go across a cut line, that's a different thing. Now we did. We've talked about this ten times on this uh program. We one time come around the corner in a canyon and walked in on a wild turkey. And this wild turkey laid down and laid his head and neck out flat ass on the ground. He jumped for cover, laid down. Yep. I've seen Axis deer do that. I mean, you well, from here to that wall, know they're there with a bow and be trying to get a shot at them, and they're just up under a bush, put their head up under the bush, and like their neck where you can't, you can just see their rump. Like he's hiding from He's you. hiding from you, and then when you get in whatever zone he knows he can bolt, he bolts. And it's so fast that you're nothing you can do. What's your take, Annie? You can't throw it out and then not have any feedback. I gave my, my my answer to the hardest animal to find, but now you guys are talking about deer on their knees. I didn't throw that out, but I do have that was a, that was a tangent. I do have a uh, anecdote. Okay, I wasn't there. I was there in camp when this happened, but two fellows, two brothers um, came back into camp and one brother was on stand watching where we hunt in Wisconsin. It's like these uh, big oak woods and there's a lot of ridges and bowls. And pretty much you kind of, when you post up to sit for a day, you're gonna watch a whole bowl and maybe a ridge or two, the ridge behind you. He watched a buck come into this bowl Snow on the ground, watch the buck come into the bowl and go into the thicket down in the bottom. Regular white tail buck. Yeah. And disappear. Bedded down. So he and he could see all the ridges of, of this bowl. He could if the buck left, he would see it. Well, his brother shows up midday and he's like, Hey, walk the bowl for me. There's a buck down there, kick him up. So he goes down there, walks the whole bowl, no buck comes out. So they go back in there and he's like, I know where that thing went in. So they go in there and find the tracks. Then they, from the, they follow the tracks from the bed and they find a log that is laid down from the thicket up towards the ridge and they can see tracks and then a belly scraping alongside the backside of this log as it goes to the top of the ridge and then the tracks pick up and he, and he left. I like it. Walk the log. <laughs> Walk the log. No, 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 no. Behind the log. No, this belly, cover behind belly the log. scraping on the ground behind so the log. So he belly crawled behind so the log. So out of sight of the hunter. So the buck left the bowl, and that's how he got out of there with the hunter not being able to see him. I like it. Interesting. See, that makes so me like that story crawling, about that one on knee knees. crawling. There's yeah. got to be. I haven't explored YouTube, but if it's something that happens, it's mm. probably there of bucks walking on their knees to avoid detection. Yeah, that's a good one. Um, Speaking of bucks... Mm-hmm. You like that? Nice segue. A there's a news story that, that a couple people sent to me of an Amish feller who shot a poached a 26 point buck. Like he'd shot one buck, and then like 
tagged the buck and then shot another buck and moved the tag from one buck to the next buck and Fat all this. <laughs> <laughs> yep. 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 28th. We were talking about like fines, like whether or not you get a good fine or a bad fine. This guy picked up a $28,000 fine. Whoa. Where was this? In Ohio, Millersburg, Ohio. They make a big point in the article of pointing out that um, he's an Amish man. He put like a he put a game check number on the he used a game check number that had originally been used by another hunter. He'd also then also took more than one antler deer in a license year, which led it to be that he had a possession of like all these things add up, right? You wind up with all these counts, yeah. right? You're, you're like some guy would commit a crime and wind up with thirteen counts or whatever. But you want up then he's also got possession of deer parts that are improperly tagged, which is another thing it and also then, adds a lot of scrutiny into past seasons typically so maybe they picked up yeah maybe he's doing that every year he had like and it turns out like a the game check number he used was originally used on a doe but anyways it all adds up dude winds up with twenty eight thousand seven hundred and some dollars in fines that hurts and then he can't hunt for two years that's it Good. How do you, how do you get to go hunting again in two years? Those things yeah. don't equate twenty eight thousand dollars in fines and a two year penalty. Well, this guy doesn't sound like he may follow that rule either. Yeah, maybe so. not. My favorite part of it is, is it says, and I had to think about this for a minute. It says that they tried to reach him for comment, but he was unavailable for comment. He's not hunting. No, because he doesn't have a phone. <laughs> He's Amish. What are you gonna do? Send someone over there? Knock on the door. What do you think about those potions? That's a, that's a, like, I would put that in the pretty stiff fine category. Me too. Well, yeah, there's a clear trail of total disregard for the rules, right? Well, like, you know, as a hunter, would you rather see the penalty be longer in time out of the woods or money? Because I would much rather him be, you give him 10 years and five bucks. When I look at that, my thinking is, wow, that's a lot of money for a buck. Like, cause I think sometimes you see someone poaches a buck and they get a light that you wind up seeing these fines of a thousand bucks. But I think it also kind of like plays into, um, you know, I, I, you might be treated differently. You know, you're down on your luck and you shoot a forky buck for some meat. Like a judge would consider that. And a game warden, we were talking about sentences the other day and we were expressing some frustration with why do some guys get such big fines like the guy, what was the guy that killed the three moose in Alaska? He had a $100,000 fine. And, and a game warden, our, our friend Eric from Idaho wrote, and he goes, you know, you, you got to understand, the, a game warden doesn't, you don't, you don't get to dole out the punishment, right? Like it typically it goes in front of a judge, and you got judges that, that take, you know, you have certain judges that are known as real hanging judges, on wildlife crimes. And you got some judges who wildlife crimes don't really register with them. And they can't picture, oh, it's just a deer, right? Their attitude would be like, oh, you know, who cares? Yeah. They don't understand, like they don't understand the value. They maybe don't understand and prioritize the value of the resource. They might've had a, who knows what cases they heard that day of what kind of horrible crimes they've been dealing with that day. And then you come in and it's like, oh, okay, some guy shot a deer. I don't care and, and, and not treat him. But then some judges are like really hardcore. And so it kind of depends on who winds up doing the punishments. And he says, you can try to influence them by telling them like the severity of the crime, but it's not, you know, it's often not up to you. 
But you would you would think that you'd have more you stand a better chance of running into a judge that would be more strict in Alaska than you would in Ohio. Yeah, where it's recognized as a very valuable resource. It's a valuable resource. That your, citizens, that your citizens and your economy rely on that resource. And it's more prevalent. You're gonna see more wildlife related crimes in a place where people are interacting with wildlife sure. more often. And it might yeah, and it could be that you know, you get one but it's a hefty crime. But in looking at it, I'm like, God, it's a lot of money. Not that I feel bad for the dude for the fine, because it is like, you know, he really was going out of his way to, to pull off some, right? He was going way out of his way to pull. It wasn't like he made a mistake and then tried to cover it up. He was like actively being deceptive. I look, I'm like, that's a lot of cash. But then I look, I'm like, that seems like a, a, a pretty weak on the revocation of hunting privileges. I think that to your question, Ben, too, like I, I think the money, it, it is a lot of money. But I think it's it's a greater deterrent to the be, to the behavior yeah. because you can say five years or behavior two, two, of others of, of uh, and the and the culprit in this particular case because it's difficult to enforce is he out there hunting in yeah, two or true. three years it's easy to enforce pay the fine yeah have you paid or have you not paid and yeah. that, that that financial uh, burden is a is a deterrent to others and to prevent recidivism well and it, yeah and it, and it affects your family it affects others around you if that's, you're, that's if you're, right yeah and yeah the, i agree yeah i, think I can see like it that you're way. giving the guy and a chance to be good where if you take away his hunting rights the next 20 years well you've just created a dude that's going to poach for the next 20 years exactly you know yeah. that's, that's it turned right. me that, yeah, it turned that's me that's a good perspective on it this guy took like so the first bucky shot was an eight point and then he wanted to swap heads out on it <laughs> like playing legos <laughs> he wanted to swap heads out on it and they, they later recovered the eight-point head in the ditch. Oh, why no. Is always, why is it always a ditch? Because you don't like to walk very people far. People like to throw stuff <laughs> in, a ditch. in ditches. Yeah. And it's interesting, too, because, you know, Amish uh, communities are, they, they're a communal resource, right? They ditches? share their farm equipment. They share uh, oh. right, the, the responsibility. Uh, financial responsibility. So yeah, this guy did make a twenty-eight thousand dollar ding on the community. Yeah. But that being said, like, you know, uh, there are payment programs um, that you can get into to pay these fines over the course of years because they don't take somebody who makes a hundred bucks a day or twenty-five bucks a day and say, hey, you know, it's twenty-eight grand. Where is it? Typically, yeah. I mean, if you don't have it, you could they'll finance it, but you got to pay it one way or another. Yeah, I mean, there's no way around that. Yeah, so I I was talking with uh, an officer out of Lewistown, Montana, and he said he much prefers um, a seizure of uh, you know your hunting tools of the trade, in this case, your poaching tools of the trade, over anything because he feels like that in his experience, was always the greatest deterrent to future crime. It was like, we're going to take your vehicle that you use to poach this if that is a, you know, a comparable amount of fine money or we're going to take your super fancy rifle because um, he feels like that has a longer lasting sting to it than a fine that they can be like, oh, well, yeah, it just turned into... 75 bucks a month for the next 35 years or however it works. Yanis, have we talked about, um, have we talked about the guy that I, the warden I met who had the theory about super poachers? 
Yes. We talked about it? Mm-hmm. That from down in Kentucky? Nope. Oh, maybe not. Oh, I know what you're talking about. This is something different. Oh, oh, oh. yeah. Boy, I can't he, remember if we brought it up. You can he, bring it up again. Yeah, I'm going to bring it up again. <laughs> he has this idea that that in, in enforcing like in, in enforcing poaching, he feels that that you have 10% of your poachers are doing 90% of your poaching. And he thinks that that's where you need to really put your resources. And he thinks that they're the same way. He thinks there's a, it, there's a form of sociopath and like that, like sociopathic behavior can take a lot of forms and there's a type of sociopath and he has a personality type that he's built who these people are, what their motivations are, how they operate, where they live, what they do for a living, all this. He understands them and studies them. And it's a type of sociopathic behaviors to become a serial poacher. That's their outlet. Yep. And there's certain attributes of having like a trailer or a shed or a garage where you have all the heads. And you are, you have sociopathic anti-authoritarian tendencies you have a feeling that you've never really gotten what you deserve in life, that you seem to be somehow compelled along by this idea that you're going to deprive others of something. You've got it all figured out. They're idiots. You know how to find these big bucks. With the spotlight on somebody yeah. else's place. And, and, and it's like, and, and he has all these case examples of these guys who are do, like serial, you know, serial yeah. poachers where when you find their cash, it's 50 or a hundred elk heads, you know, just squirreled away in a basement. Oh, that'd be fascinating. Yeah. They think they're, you know, they look at that big pile of poaching, poached heads are like, satisfied yeah he had said that there's there's a lot of similarities with uh there's a lot of similarities with serial killers like the method like the, the the really like strange methodical behavior and it's it's a sociopathy wow so if you meet a guy that doesn't like the government thinks the man's getting him down and has a big let, pole barn in the back won't of let you look at his pole barn <laughs> <laughs> call the police call the police <laughs> yeah yeah I, we're gonna have to this might be the last one we have to wrap it up. We got a busy day. Um, <laughs> I don't know. I can't remember the guy who uh, wrote in. I don't have the email anymore. It's not the good dude's name. It's not in front of me. But he wrote in asking why in the show we're always uh, and we take always. We always think this show. I think it's the editors must like to show us oh, loading it. the cartridge into the chamber. Yeah, they like that nice metallic. They love clanky it. sound. Um, and so, so this so guy was Hollywood. This, yeah. yeah, editors like crit crossings, yeah. gate openings, burners getting turned on, ignited. I just watched and the un- chamber shell shelling chamberings. The Untouchables with Kevin Costner, you know, and uh, mm-hmm. Sean Connery, great flick. And they they must rack those pump shotguns about <laughs> ten times. And it's like in the Simpsons. How many times is Mo racked? Is how many times the bartender Mo racked his pump shotgun? <laughs> That's funny. I just watched uh, that Netflix uh, Bird Box. Dude, did and, you? Oh. Uh, Sandra Bullock's in there, and when, Racking that when shot yeah, to, to prove her character, she's in there going. She's like, I grew up. She said something like, I grew up on a farm. Like what? What does that have to do? Every time I go to a farm, I look around everywhere. I look at some guy racking a twelve gauge. I grew up in a rural environment. And you're like, what? Oh well, clearly you have. Somebody in Hollywood wrote that shit. My dad has a horse. 
Oh, watching Hollywood writers be like, oh, no, I know all about these rural folks. <laughs> what they like to do. Yep. I eat a lot of canned vegetables. <laughs> You're like, what? <laughs> go, on, go on, Giannis. Uh, so he's wondering uh, why we do that, why we show that, why we're out hunting without a, um, a round in the chamber. He he is in the woods always. Once he starts hunting, he's got a round chambered with the safety on. And that's how he goes about it. So I'll answer it with a song. There's no business like um. Largely what you're seeing is a function of show business because we have a chaotic, oftentimes a chaotic situation with camera guys circling around, popping up in unexpected places on you now and then. And it's different than just being out by yourself or being out with your buddy when you have a good synergy and you kind of understand where everyone is. And it's really, it's easy to have good muzzle control. And just like, if you're out hunting with your buddy, it's just, once you know what you're doing and, and, and you guys kind of like know how to move, you just do not whine in situations where someone's sweeping their muzzle across your chest. It just doesn't happen. Um, it's easy to stay aware of who's around you and what's going on. When you, when you throw in a, a filming in, environment, um, there's just too there's there's too much that feels at times like a little bit out of control or surprising and there's like extra people around who need to get and get good angles and they're out in front of you and they're behind you and and it just winds it, it's a good added safety it's a good added safety protocol to just not do it unless you get in the heat of the moment and you feel like you're in a situation where there could be a shot coming up like in in tight quarters um, in, in, when we're filming in that situation, I would even say, Hey, heads up, I'm chambering around. And then the, this moment passes and I would be like, heads up, clearing the round. And it's just, it's something we just developed over time. That was a good thing. With that said, um, if, if I'm bombing up some trail in the dark, I, I don't like, I don't like pull my gun out of a case and automatically chamber around. It just kind of depends what's going on. Yeah, I think in most instances, it rarely helps. It's like it's not really that much of an added benefit to have one around chambered. Yeah, John was saying earlier, if you're still, if you know you're still hunting, right? It starts to rain, you're like, I'm just going to get them walking around and see if I run into something. Then maybe, if you're by yeah. yourself, then maybe. But otherwise, I mean, I'm curious to see if anybody at the table here had hasn't been involved in any accidental discharges. No, I've I, seen them. I yeah. have, yeah. yeah three, I, have three, sure. I can think of three or four right offhand. Absolutely. Yeah, and, you know, it's a, I think it's a really good topic that hunters should talk more about. I kind of preach it to my kids in, in the nature of hunter education. I mean, we're, it's a zero-tolerance uh, game. You know, you get, you get no chance to make a mistake. Yeah, accidental discharges and all the rest. But I, I'm a strong advocate of not chambering around when you're rifle hunting in most situations. And I, I certainly have friends who have a different opinion of it and they think you know, they're, they wanna be ready in case they need to make a quick shot or something. To me, it's not worth it and it's almost never a situation where you're, you're even gonna miss a hunting opportunity if you have to take a minute and, and rack a rifle around with a bolt action rifle or whatever. So my, my, my uh, opinion on it is it's, it's better typically not to have a round chambered. 
Yeah, it's an easy one. We're I think. always, you know, spot and stock hunting out west. So you see a lot of that, you know, on the show. And John, you obviously that's mostly what you do. But like back east when I grew up hunting deer and I was gonna sit in a stand, I'm definitely gonna have a round chamber. Yeah. Once I get set in that stand, and even if I was hunting with somebody, I'd probably still get in a stand. And once you're ready, you're gonna chamber one. Because a white tailed deer in, you know, those kind of woods your shots going to be less than a hundred yards. And a lot of times they pop up and they're just right there in front of and, you. And, and you could screw up the hunting opportunity if you had to chamber around. Totally. I, I get that. And it's reasonably safe. You're sitting there yeah, by exactly. yourself. You got good muzzle control, all the, all the rest of it. And, you, and you're right, Giannis. Out here in the West, larger country, spot and stock hunting for the most part. That's, that's kind, of, kind of what I was talking about. And you're about. climbing over stuff and under stuff. And yeah. it's like, uh, you know, recently I was hunting with my little boy and we set up to rattle, you know, to call hunting whitetails and set up i'm like okay we're gonna chamber around and talked about how we're gonna do that and then talked about how we're gonna undo it you know um to be ready what i used to do i i now use a neoprene sock you know a neoprene cover for my scope which i love not I, I can't picture ever using anything else i used to use the kind that had like the elastic you know the shock cord we used to make our own just go down to a hardware store and make these like indestructible shock cord scope covers with PVC, um, what I would do is if I had a round in my chamber, I would always have that scope cover as a reminder. I would put that scope cover on like a bracelet. And that was my like, you have a round in your chamber, don't forget. Yeah, that's a, that's a nice thing to do. A, a little, you know, tool or a device to remind you that you that you have a round chamber. Because, you know, stuff happens out there. It's, it's chaos theory. Just when you think, oh, my, I've got a round chamber, but I'm good. This is an easy hike and my safety's on. You know, that's when you cross over a log and you trip and fall. I mean, just stuff happens. Yeah, I would never. Uh, my oldest kid is eight. It will be that many more years into the future, probably more, before I would ever entertain the idea of him having a chambered round unless he was preparing to shoot. Right, and it, it as a parent, it really hits home with you. You know, when when you're... When your kids are are now hunting on their own with their buddies, and it's like, okay, you know, go, go get them, guys. Uh, I personally, still to this day, say I don't want you chambering around, and I don't really want you hunting with someone who's got a round chambered. You know, assess the the hunting competency of your buddies. Yeah, because that's the one. That's the bullet that's gonna get you. <laughs> yeah, you know, <laughs> and, and and I have had good friends. I've had experiences hunting with very good friends who did not maintain control of their muzzle and you see a muzzle pass in front of your body. And, and I hate to be kind of a jerk about it, but it's almost like a zero tolerance deal. It's like, I'm probably not going to hunt with you again. Yeah. Did you hear the story this year? I can't remember what state. It was in the Midwest. A uh, guy was hunting with his dad and he went to pick up his dad and his dad was getting down off his tree stand or somehow, somehow decided to hand by the barrel, hand his rifle to his son. His son reaches up to grab the rifle. Boom. Dead dad. Brutal. Yeah. Because it's, it's a game of worst case scenario. What's the worst case scenario if you don't have a round shaver? A deer gets away? That's the thing. I can't, I, I, and sitting here talking about it, I really can't think of a, I can't think of a case, a situation where you could really honestly say, I would have had I would have had that whatever had I had it round chambered. I really can't think of a case that that I could legitimately say that's thing. And people talk about the noise, but what I do is I keep, I'll keep like when I'm doing that, 
I'll often keep one in my pocket or I'll keep around in my bino harness. And you don't need to go like, it's not like you're like demonstrating your rural street creds, but you can just kind of open it up, place it in there, not work one out of the, not working one out of the magazine, which is noisy, but open, place one in, put your finger on the round that's in the magazine, press it down, close the bolt. It's not that loud. Well, you can leave, if you're sitting, as the audience was saying, you're sitting in a ground blind or just sit up against a tree, you leave the bolt open. Yeah. In that same way. You know, I grew, I grew up, my dad, if he said watch, watch your muzzle once every 10 minutes, it wasn't a surprise. Even if, you know, even if I was, had shoulder sling my rifle and there's no way I was going to muzzle anybody, he would still say watch your muzzle. Absolutely. And, and kids should start learning that with BB guns. And it's, it's a lifelong thing. And now, you know, you get through teenage years. My kid, my oldest son now is 22. And, you know, we just hunted with him a few days ago. And uh, it's like, you know, when you're hunting with your friends, don't be afraid to say, my gun's clear, I'm empty, my gun's safe. You know, all the little Hunter Ed things, just keep doing it. Yeah, my buddy Guy Zuck, man, he, uh, when we're with him, he'll, he'll say he's doing it, like he'll acknowledge it, but he doesn't take your word for it. Be like, oh, it's clear. Well, I'm gonna check. Yeah, I think water. Like, go ahead, bro. Like, don't don't apologize to me, man. Totally. Don't apologize, it, like, don't apologize to me about it. Check all you want. Don't be insecure about that stuff. I mean, it's no skin off anybody's nose. It makes sure your gun's safe, and it's just habits. And to hit the thing with the kids, I'll tell you, like uh, th- this year, I was hunting cottontails with my eight year old, and he'd shot a cottontail, and then we were sitting there, and he wanted to get his, he wanted to keep the twenty two casing as a, like, just to put in his little bag, his little medicine box, you know? So he goes to get it out and it like, doesn't occur to him that when he goes, so he opens it up to retrieve one and closes it. And I'm like, now buddy, what just happened? And it, like, it didn't occur to him like, oh, and getting the one that I wanted, I chambered one. I mean, I'll sit, he doesn't do anything without me being right on top of him and, and handling, you know? But had I not been there, it wouldn't have occurred. It, he wouldn't have put that together. Well, I mean, we're talking about bolt-action rifles, really, in this situation, or spotting, stalking a, a deer or something. Think about in the upland field, you you can't if you're if you're running an over/under, you can't walk around. I mean, you you could walk around sometimes with it broke open, yeah. but most times you can't. It's hard. It's hard. You're like jump shooting, yeah. It's like you're. That's a real. That's a real deficit. Same. <laughs> well, I ha- and how many people do you be sitting in a pit blind with a bunch of dudes where you got the the rack in front of you where you lean up your shotgun and it's loaded? And it's wet or icy or something. The shotgun just goes, yeah. boop, falls over. And if it's loaded, you never know what's going to happen. Yeah. I mean, so those are to me like some of the more dangerous situations there are. For sure. Yeah. And there's definitely there's definitely cases where it really has implications for like efficacy, right? Like it's it's not if you're sitting there in a duck blind. It, in order to be like in the game and to be like an active participant there, you're gonna you have to be ready to shoot. You got to be ready to shoot. So that. That comes down to where you increasingly, like you're really relying on judgment and attentiveness. Um, I think there are other cases where if you really look at it like case by case going throughout your day, there's a lot of situations where you're really not at a deficit to have that extra. But it's a thing enough where like so many people have written in asking that question. Yeah, yeah. No, I had an interesting thing go down when I was in North Carolina over the holidays. I, <clears throat> through Kevin Murphy, I met another uh, squirrel hunter that had a dog. And when he picked me up, he said, oh, we're going to go pick up this uh, a friend of mine. He's 77. 
he's uh, training dogs, but he doesn't walk the woods anymore. But he's just gonna come come along and you know hang out at the truck. I'm like, great, you know. So we go and pick this guy up. He gets in the truck. He doesn't even introduce himself. He's just like, hey man. Um, are you cool on gun safety? Because we only hunt with dudes that have a gun safety <laughs> as a high priority. And I was just kind of like, whoa, you know, like, but you know, and he went on to tell me he had two uh, family members, some of them kind of distant, you know, a couple cousins removed or whatever, but two family members that had been in gun accidents, you know, really? one had died. But uh, yeah, that just struck me. And of course I was like, yeah, bro, I've, I don't hunt with dudes that, you know, don't, exhibit you know superior gun safety either and you know i won't even load my gun until there's a squirrel that up in a tree that i'm looking at right on top of that how's your personal hygiene <laughs> <laughs> but uh only after that did he say uh so you're from montana what's your name i said Giannis. he goes ah it's an interesting name <laughs> janice janice poodless uh quick update it's hard because like there's like a delay and because of the holidays we haven't been able to like monitor where things are at on ticket sales for the upcoming live tour, but we have upcoming events. I believe uh, it'll be way old news by the time it gets there. Our, our Portland events totally sold out. That real quick. We have upcoming events, uh, Houston, Dallas, Sacramento, Seattle. Kalamazoo, Michigan. Kalamazoo, Michigan. I'm not sure what's there. Cleveland, not sure what's there. I think that most every venue, our VIP tickets are gone. There's still VIP tickets. And I don't know. Uh, I don't think there are. There's still tickets for Reno. Absolutely. Um, dude, go to our Reno show. Um, Is that Sheep Show? Yeah. yeah you can go yeah. to Sheep Show at the same time. Yeah. Sweet, yeah. And enter the Less Than One Club because most of you mugs listen and probably have not killed a sheep. And there's no better way to get an opportunity to go hunt a there's, sheep than there's hanging somebody out in this. Most mugs have not wait, wait, killed a sheep. There's somebody in this room who went to the Less Than One Club last oh, year. that's right. And happened to win. Did you go do that? No, I have not. You when does that happen? fixing to? Well, I yes, I I do want to go. It's like the only thing I've ever won. So yeah, that'd be great. You're it, a big winner. It, no, I'm not a big winner. I am not a big winner. No, I'm just one of those guys who just greases the skids for everybody else. Uh, you're one hell of a goose caller, dude. I'll give you that. Oh, I had no idea. Holy Cal fuck. is a very talented sportsman. I knew that, but I had no idea that he was such an emphatic and effective caller. Duck hunting's wild, you know. Like We hadn't been hunting together, so I'm like feeling everybody out and... Cal's hammer and the mallard call, you know, and I was this close to going, dude, come on, ease up on the mount. But then I was like, damn, this guy can call some, he's turning call birds. Some, call some birds. Yeah, he's turning birds. <laughs> <laughs> talking to animals, man. I've always, always loved talking to animals. Cal, we, there was a bunch of geese flying in a V high. Like I would have bet the ranch they're packing the mail, you know. Yeah. Heading, I wouldn't even call that. Heading out of country. And dang, if Cal didn't turn them, broke them up, and they came in and we got them. They're like, who's that sweet throated? It was cool. Shotgun was, uh, toting, round chambered. It was good that you guys saw that day because there's a lot of days when those geese just keep on and going. So that was fun. That was super fun. All right. Uh, uh, as I was uh, mentioning, live tour, go to themeateater.com, fish around there, and uh, sign up for our newsletter while you're there and fish around there for live events and then go dig around and check out which venue you would like to go to. We'll add more venues. 
But right now we're focusing on these ones we got there. So go go check around. Um, you folks look forward to meeting you. And you'll have a chance to buy our um, live tour exclusive steam breathing wild turkey t-shirt and other cool stuff. Speaking of sheep show. Oh, good. Okay, I was going to end the show, but I like that segue so much. <laughs> Sorry. And all the way back to what's the hardest game to find, you got to kind of throw a nod in for, for sheep. Oh, I tried to find a real quick story. Yeah. Doll sheep in the snow, not easy. <laughs> not easy. One time I was following a set of tracks in my spotting scope and then couldn't figure out what happened to the tracks. It seems like I'd be able to continue seeing them until I realized that I was staring at a sheep at the terminus of the tracks, which it didn't even register me that that's why the tracks seem to mysteriously end. Wild. Um, you guys going to be set up at Sheep Show? Yeah, man. Schnee's booth? At yeah. You going to be there in person? I will be. Yeah. You come give John a hug and a kiss? That's right. Free kisses. Buy some boots? <laughs> Free kisses. <laughs> you can rub it in how he didn't get to go to me and Cal's meat party. <laughs> Thank you for listening. Hey, we're going to take a little break here and talk about interstate batteries. Now, if you're like me, enjoying the great outdoors, you need gear that is as reliable as it gets. That's why I power my adventures with interstate batteries. I use interstate batteries in my boats. I use interstate batteries in my camper. Great for your truck, too. From Alaska to Montana, they're outrageously dependable. Battery is essential. With over 150,000 dealer locations, finding one is easy. For all your vehicles, land or sea, choose Interstate. Head to interstatebatteries.com and find your power today.